Welcome to the Communique podcast. The objectives of the Communiques are to develop, produce and distribute electronic educational publications that encourage clinical practice to change for the benefits of patients, residents, health and aged care services and the whole community. Over half of our subscribers attribute a change in their clinical practice due to the Communique. The print versions in these podcasts present cases of premature and preventable deaths that occur in health and aged care settings. We explore three areas. What happened? Why did it happen? And what action can we take to prevent it from happening again? The cases are the accounts from the completed medico-legal death investigation of the coroner's court and our team of senior medical and nursing practitioner present this coronial information in a manner and format that is familiar to clinicians. Our three publications are the Clinical Communique, focusing on acute care, the Future Leaders Communique, designed for recent health graduates, and the Residential Aged Care Communique, which examines deaths in aged care or nursing homes. The online print versions are available at our website, thecommuniques.com, which also includes the resources recommended for each edition. Welcome to this podcast of our February 2018 edition of the Residential Aged Care Communique. I'm Professor Joseph Ibrahim and the Senior Editor of this issue. This podcast episodes examines harm from falls and cervical neck fractures in aged care. We start with the editorial which introduces the topic highlighting that the risk of falls confronts every older person in every aged care facility in every country. We will then present two case studies. In each case, the resident suffered significant neck injuries leading to death. There are also three expert commentaries, one from an occupational therapist, another from a physiotherapist, and the third one's from a geriatrician. These provide useful information about falls management and post-falls management. Let's now listen to our narrator, Luke Ward, present the editorial. The first issue of 2018 focuses on falls and is the third time in 10 years that we have addressed this perennial concern. The risk of falls confronts every older person in every aged care facility in every country. Despite some gains in prevention and better post-fall management, the harm from falls remains a major cause of injury and injury-related deaths in older persons and residents. It is also important to consider this in the context of the most recent release of the next draft by the Commonwealth Government concerning aged care quality standards. The general expectation is that this will be part of a package of legislative amendments to be tabled in Parliament later in February 2018. Two of the ideas that the RAC communique and our research staff have long promoted are visible in the proposed standards around the identification and management of high-impact or high-prevalence risks and organisational systems for clinical governance, continuous improvement, risk management, monitoring abuse and neglect, restraint, etc. Proposed Standard 8. This RAC communique edition addresses the most common cause of resident deaths from injury and illustrates how falls risks are both high prevalence and have a high impact for residents. Other examples of high risks are available to read in past editions of our back catalogue, 
while a discussion of the issues around clinical governance can be found in our March 2013 edition of the RAC Communique, Volume 8, Issue 1. Once these new standards are ratified, our editorial team will identify how the past RAC Communiques assist in focusing residential aged care services on key concepts. It is an exciting time with the new standards strengthening the focus on providers being required to demonstrate systems for the delivery of safe and effective care to residents. The RAC Communique will continue as an important educational resource to help us collectively achieve these goals. The two cases in this edition highlight the need for robust post-falls management practice, greater awareness of circumstances that lead to falls, and the importance of good communication and documentation. There are three expert commentaries written by clinicians in practice. Craig Edlin is a senior physiotherapist who challenges his peers to be role models and leaders in the provision of care for older people in RACS. Sally Eastwood provides a view from an occupational therapist practicing in a range of hospital, community and RACS settings. Dr. Chelsea Baird, a geriatrician, provides our third commentary with useful information about post-falls management. Let's now listen to our narrator, Luke Ward, present the first case titled First Impression. Case number one, First Impressions. Case number 2012-3130. Precy author, Carmel Young, RNCCM, Department of Forensic Medicine, Monash University. Clinical Summary. Miss VV was a 76-year-old female who resided in an RACS located in a seaside town where she required high-level care. Her past medical history included dementia, Parkinson's disease and anxiety. She had declining cognitive function with a hearing impairment and was non-verbal. One winter's day, Miss VV had an unwitnessed fall in her room at approximately midday. Upon finding her, the personal care assistant sought the help of a second PCA to get Miss VV back to bed. As no registered nurse or state-enrolled nurse was on duty at that time, a SEN from another area of the facility was asked to review Miss VV. The facility's manager was also asked to review Miss VV sometime after the fall. The general practitioner was then notified and it was decided not to transfer Miss VV to hospital but to monitor her condition at the nursing home. Four hours after the fall, Miss Vivi's family came to visit, found her in distress, and immediately asked for a reassessment. As a result of that second assessment, another phone call was placed to the GP and Miss Vivi was transferred via ambulance to the hospital. Imaging tests revealed a fractured C7 vertebrae, a fractured neck of femur, an acute subdural hematoma, and a subarachnoid hemorrhage. After discussions with the family, Miss VV was provided with comfort care and died five days later. Pathology The cause of death following an external examination by the forensic pathologist was determined to be complications of head and neck injuries sustained in a fall. The contributing factors were Parkinson's disease, dementia and chronic subdural hematoma. Investigation when the family were advised that the coroner intended to close the case as a chamber's finding, that is, without holding an inquest, they raised concerns about the care and management post-incident. The coroner then decided to investigate the matter further and statements were obtained from staff at the RACS. 
These statements were given to the family to consider whether their concerns had been addressed. These documents included RACS progress notes along with the facility's policy about Foles' assessment. The matter was listed as a mention-slash-directions hearing three years after the incident. As no firm conclusion was reached on the matter, the coroner listed the case for an inquest. The inquest was held over two days, four months later, and involved the RACS staff and provider, as well as two general practitioners. At the inquest, the first SEN who examined Miss VV considered that she needed to go to hospital. The SEN was concerned about the head strike and that Miss VV's pupils were pinpoint. The SEN said that her original notes went missing, but as she had kept her own notes, she was able to make retrospective notes when asked to go into the facility the next day. She explained that the curtains had been pulled closed in the room to check the pupil reaction and she found the pupils were brisk and reacting to light. The RACS manager checked the range of movement of Miss Vivi's legs and arms and was told by the SEN that Miss Vivi was usually quite stiff. The RACS manager was not aware that Miss Vivi was on aspirin but was told of the possible head strike. The RACS manager also said that she had not made any contemporaneous notes of her examination and assessment, nor of her discussion with the GP. The coroner noted that observations were undertaken for only one hour after the fall. The nurse who was asked to perform the observations was not told how long to do them for and so stopped after one hour. The GP at the inquest stated that if he was told of the fall and head strike, he would have asked that Miss VV be transferred to hospital for further investigation. Coroner's Comments and Findings The coroner stated that the fall with obvious head strike should have resulted in a thorough examination and assessment being undertaken by at least a Divisional 1 registered nurse or even more appropriately by a medical practitioner. The coroner was critical in the absence of a formal post-incident review. The coroner stated that it would have been most helpful if the observations and recollections of the staff involved had been sought and documented shortly after the incident. The issue of the adequacy, or more importantly, the inadequacy of documentation in the progress notes, would have been obvious at that time. The coroner recommended that RACS formalise and implement a comprehensive, robust internal review process to examine their approach to this event. Editor's note. A detailed root cause analysis following this type of incident assists in identifying the gaps in care and what improvements need to be made in the future. It is worthwhile looking back to our March 2013 RAC communique, which explores the utility of RCA and has an interesting commentary on the nature of evidence and recall. These concepts are still applicable today. The past issue also highlights the importance of using information and lessons from other RACS to improve our service. The need for better documentation and improved responsiveness in RACS are recurring themes familiar to our long-time subscribers. These themes are once again pertinent in this case and feature in the proposed New Age Care Standards, specifically in initial and ongoing resident assessment and care planning to inform the delivery of safe and effective care, proposed standard 2.2, and deterioration or change of a consumer's function, capacity or condition is recognised and responded to in a timely manner, proposed standard 3.5.
Let's now listen to our narrator, Luke Ward, present the second case titled Keeping Warm in the Sun. Case number two, Keeping Warm in the Sun. Case number, Taz021-2016. Precy author, Carmel Young, RNCCM, Department of Forensic Medicine, Monash University. Clinical Summary Mr. D.D. was a 91-year-old male who lived independently in his own home until he had a fall that required hospitalisation. After this episode, he moved into a medium-sized RACS in a small regional town. His past medical history included Alzheimer's disease, atrial fibrillation, hypertension, angina, arthritis, deep vein thrombosis and osteoporosis. At the time of entering the RACS, Mr. DD used a four-wheeled walking frame to assist mobility and required supervision when moving from his chair to his bed or from chair to chair. It was noted that Mr. DD had a high risk of falls and that he enjoyed sitting in the sun in a courtyard outside his room. On a warm summer day, about six months after entering the RACS, Mr. DD opened the double doors and went outside as he usually did to sit in a chair to enjoy the sunshine. Sometime later, nursing staff were notified by other residents that Mr. DD had had a fall. Staff found Mr. DD outside, still sitting but with his neck flexed forward in the chair, which was now resting on an angle against a brick wall. A hoist was required to move him out of the chair and transfer him indoors to his bed. Mr. DD said that he had a sore shoulder and could not feel his legs. An ambulance was called and Mr. DD was conveyed to hospital where he was diagnosed with a fractured C7 vertebrae and subluxation at the C6 and 7 joint in his neck. Surgery was not considered an appropriate option because of Mr. DD's age and frailty. Conservative measures were put in place with the primary purpose of maintaining comfort and symptom control. Mr. D.D. deteriorated over the next few days and died in hospital four days after the incident. Pathology The cause of death was determined to be a hypostatic pneumonia due to a traumatic fracture of C7 vertebrae and subluxation of C6 and 7, resulting in an unstable cervical joint. Beginning Investigation The coroner completed the investigation without holding an inquest. The coroner found that when Mr. D.D. entered the RACS the previous year, there had been an extensive care plan that outlined to staff his mobility limitations and guidance requirements. Mr. D.D. was judged as being a high falls risk and he spent most of each day sitting in a courtyard outside his room. The investigation identified the access to the courtyard was through an internal door and this was not alarmed. This led out to a small concrete slab and then opened up to a larger grassed area. On the occasion in question, Mr. DD had moved his chair onto the grassed area, which was on a slope, rather than continuing his usual practice of sitting on the concrete area. The chair that collapsed under Mr. DD was made of moulded plastic and was lightweight. The investigation also identified that there were not any call buttons for residents to use in the outdoor area. Also, There were no processes for monitoring residents in an outdoor area on a regular basis. Coroner's Comments and Findings The coroner concluded that the use of lightweight plastic chairs was not optimal, especially when used in outdoor areas. 
The coroner also recommended that appropriate steps be taken to ensure that residents who use these outdoor chairs are confined to areas where the ground is level and stable. Another recommendation was that some formal procedure be in place to provide ongoing monitoring of residents in outdoor areas. The final recommendation was that the RACS carry out an assessment as to whether the most appropriate actions were taken when Mr DD was found. Author's comments. While it is essential that comprehensive assessment and planning is undertaken to provide the daily living supports to enhance a resident's well-being and quality of life, especially for individuals with a history of falls, post-fall assessments are equally important in RACS. In particular, whether moving Mr DD to a more comfortable place may have increased the risk of injury to the spine as his neck was not stabilised at that time. Let's now listen to our narrator, Luke Ward, present the first expert commentary titled An Occupational Therapist's View. Sally Eastwood provides her viewpoint from a practising occupational therapist who has worked in a range of hospital, community and aged care settings. There is a fine line when caring for residents between allowing autonomy and ensuring safety. It can be difficult to respond to the individual needs of the residents while also providing equipment and care to suit the broader group. In relation to the case involving Mr DD, we have a resident that has a very set daily routine and therefore appropriate seating could have been provided for him to use individually. Outdoor areas at RACS should be designed to encourage residents to sit outside. To successfully do this, we need a variety of furniture that would accommodate all residents. An additional factor to consider is sitting these in a way so as to minimise the need for moving furniture, for staff occupational health and safety reasons. It is important to engage an occupational therapist when reviewing and setting up new outdoor and indoor areas such as these. Occupational therapists are trained to develop safe and engaging areas, working with the staff and management at each facility. They are able to provide knowledge and expertise related to appropriate equipment and furniture to meet the needs of the residents at the facility. Occupational therapists can also be engaged to review areas specific to a resident's needs. This may be required when a new resident is admitted to ensure they can safely access all areas of the home. Plastic garden chairs are not appropriate to be used in this setting, as identified in the case of Mr DD. These chairs are unstable, especially when used on uneven ground. Another concern is that the material may become brittle when left outside in the weather for long periods of time, and so the chair may collapse when a person sits down. When choosing chairs, management should liaise with occupational therapists to ensure they are selecting appropriate options. The structure, composition and design of the chairs are important. In Mr. DD's case, a recommendation for using metal chairs is reasonable as the material is more stable and more durable than plastic. However, an overly ornate arty metal chair, which is very low in height or has a narrow base, may not be safe. Chairs should be positioned in multiple places to allow residents to sit under shade or in the sun, based on their preference. This will eliminate the need for residents or staff to move the chairs. The chairs should be a combination of singular and park bench style. This would enable residents to sit alone, together or with their families as they wish. The single chairs should be positioned individually and in groups to allow residents to interact if and when they choose. In relation to how the outdoor area is set up, 
there should be multiple areas provided for variety and to increase engagement. For example, have a concrete area which overlooks a garden with pathways that wind around the courtyards and garden areas to encourage mobility, and having seating along the way. This style of courtyard and garden can allow for sensory sections, vegetable patches and raised garden beds for further engagement and meaningful activity. Again, consultation with and inclusion of occupational therapists during the planning process will ensure a more successful design that optimises safety and engagement in the area. As these areas can be quite large, having a call button within reach may not always be possible. One way to overcome this hurdle is to have portable call buttons on lanyards hanging by the courtyard doors. Residents would then be encouraged to wear one of these when outside so they can call for assistance if required. This is not a robust solution as it relies on the resident to collect the call button and return it after use. However, for the residents who venture out regularly, this could be incorporated into their routine. Regular checks by staff will always be an important contributor to safety for residents. However, the previous suggestions will allow residents to have some autonomy in their day whilst also maintaining safety. Let's now listen to our narrator, Luke Ward, present the second expert commentary. This is titled, A Physiotherapist's Perspective. It was written by Craig Edlin, who is a senior physiotherapist and challenges his peers to be role models and leaders in the provision of care for older people. Commentary, a physiotherapist perspective. Craig Edland, Bachelor of Physiotherapy, Master of Science Physiotherapist, St Vincent's Hospital, Melbourne. On initial review of Mr DD's case, there are not many aspects of his death seemingly relevant to a physiotherapist. The most obvious aspects a physiotherapist may have influenced are how he mobilised with the chair prior to falling when he should have been supervised for all mobility, and his initial care after the neck injury when a physiotherapist may have assisted. However, on further thinking, there are other interesting subtexts for physiotherapists. These are opportunity-generating behaviours, the leadership role of physiotherapists, and person-centred risk management. The coroner recommended some formal procedure be in place to provide ongoing monitoring of residents in outdoor areas. In other facilities, these have been called comfort rounds or care rounds and involve nurses and personal care attendants walking around the facility on a regular basis, checking on and documenting the safety and well-being of residents. These rounds also generate opportunity to identify and actively manage risks. Quality and frequency of these rounds can be variable and depend on workload, the understanding and training of staff, as well as the culture of the facility. Additional form filling and seemingly pointless care tasks can feel like a burden to staff and residents without tangible benefit. The culture of the facility plays an important role in viewing risk identification, not just as formal processes, but also as continuous, implicit and informal behaviours. These may be as simple as walking the long way from one place to another and engaging with residents along the way, not getting stuck in the nurse's station or other staff areas, but being out and interacting with the residents, writing notes in resident visible areas, when a potential risk is identified, taking the time to work with a resident and other staff to manage appropriately. These informal behaviours generate more opportunity to identify risks or other care needs as they arise, although their impact can be difficult to measure.
They could also be viewed as time intensive when we all feel time poor with activity and care targets that have to be met. Yet, physiotherapists who are highly trained team members in RAC facilities can lead by example. We should be role modeling behavior that improves the risk culture of the facility and the experience of residents through regular and any ad hoc interactions. These interactions are challenging to generate in a way that balances privacy with the observation and freedom with the restriction. This requires a framework of risk management that respects the autonomy of an individual's right, even with dementia, to engage in meaningful activity such as sitting in the sun and minimizes the potential for harm. Removing the ability to engage in meaningful autonomous activity has been argued as tantamount to a form of restraint at least philosophically, and increases dependence and institutionalization. In situations like Mr. DD's, risks can rarely be eliminated, but it is important to acknowledge risks have positive effects as well as negative ones that are individual to each person. There is no doubt that balancing risk is very challenging and really does require a person-centered, context-specific approach with clear communication between residents, relatives, carers and staff. For Mr. DD, this balancing act may have involved ensuring he could still enjoy sitting in the sun whenever he liked, which would be meaningful and autonomous, while doing it in a safe place with safe equipment and frequent formal and informal observation and supervision for harm minimization. The RAC facility physiotherapist has a role as a leader and role model within the multidisciplinary team to adopt proactive risk behaviour and work as part of the team to find the best outcomes for residents and staff. Resources Titterton M. 2005 Risk and Risk Taking in Health and Social Welfare Education From London Jessica Kingsley Publishers Also Australian Physiotherapy Association 2017 Code of Conduct, Our Principles and Values. Available at www.physiotherapy.asn.au slash documents folder slash advocacy slash AIR31 underscore APA underscore code underscore of underscore conduct dot PDF. Let's now listen to our narrator, Luke Ward, present the third expert commentary. This is titled Cervical Spine Injuries in the Elderly. Dr. Chelsea Baird, a geriatrician, provides this commentary and within it you'll hear some very useful information about post-falls management. Commentary. Cervical Spine Injuries in the Elderly. Dr. Chelsea Baird, Bachelor of Science, Med, MBBS Honours, FRACP, Geriatric Medicine, Department of Forensic Medicine, Monash University and Ballarat Health Service. These cases highlight the tragic consequences of ground level or lower falls in older people. It also shows the importance of a thorough initial assessment and reminds us that low impact falls can be a major trauma in this population. Falls are common in community-dwelling older people and even more common in residential aged care. Falls prevention strategies are often the focus of research, guidelines and policy. However, when a resident falls, the immediate post-fall management may become chaotic. Assessment of older patients following a fall is challenging. The patient and carers may be distressed. 
there is a desire to rapidly transfer the patient to a bed or chair to provide care and comfort. But in our rush to preserve dignity, we may be exposing the patient to significant complications. Falls from ground level are often mistakenly considered as minor trauma and may therefore be underassessed. A fall from standing height or lower in the elderly can be a mechanism for significant harm, including spinal and traumatic brain injuries. Older patients with ground level falls are less likely to be admitted under a trauma service compared to a younger cohort, indicating that even in our major hospitals, the serious nature of these falls is under-recognised and inappropriately triaged. The older population should be considered unique when it comes to post-fall care. Reduced spinal mobility due to degenerative disease and reduced bone health mean that older patients are less likely to withstand mechanical forces associated with falls. Cervical spine injuries have a poor prognosis in the older population with a 19% three-month mortality rate in those over 65 years. This rises to a 30% three-month mortality rate in those greater than 85 years. Assessing for injuries post-falls is complex in the older population who may have comorbidities such as underlying cognitive or communication difficulties. Therefore, in the frailest of our population, the need for a timely and deliberate assessment of injuries post-falls is most crucial. While the response time should be rapid, it still needs to be thorough and systematic. The patient should not be moved until completion of the assessment. Inquire about neck pain. Gently examine the cervical spine, looking for tenderness, swelling, or a step in spinal structures. A neurologic examination, looking for numbness or weakness, indicating spinal injury, should be undertaken. In this case, Mr. D's posture when he was found post-fall, forced forward with flexion of the neck, suggested a possible mechanism of direct neck injury. No record of an initial assessment was made and it is not possible to determine if the use of a hoist and lack of immediate spinal immobilization exacerbated the situation. Evidence-based decision tools exist to assist clinicians when deciding if a cervical injury can be excluded or if further radiological assessment is warranted. The Nexus criteria mandates imaging if any of these features are present. Midline cervical tenderness Altered mental status Focal neurological deficit, evidence of drug or alcohol intoxication, or presence of other injury considered painful enough to distract from neck pain. In the older population with a higher proportion of underlying cognitive impairment, altered mental state can be redefined as a change from baseline mental state. This definition relies on having a good knowledge of the patient's usual mental state. Nexus criteria has been shown to have a lower sensitivity in elderly patients, suggesting that we need to remain vigilant in this group and have a low threshold for imaging. Of course, spinal immobilization is burdensome. It requires transfer to the emergency department and often a prolonged, uncomfortable period of lying supine in a hard collar. These discomforts should not influence our decision in ensuring the appropriate clinical care. Our hospital systems are beginning to recognise and adapt to the needs of the elderly. More needs to be done, especially in prioritising radiological assessment before a person suffers complications from immobilisation. In managing the elderly trauma patient, 
It is always safer to immobilize and complete radiological imaging, especially if there is any doubt. The editorial team is keen to receive feedback about this communication, especially in relation to changes in clinical practice. Please email your comments, questions and suggestions to racc at vifmcommuniques.org. Disclaimer. All cases that are discussed in the residential aged care communique are public documents. A document becomes public once the coronial investigation process has been completed and the case is closed. We have made every attempt to ensure that individuals and organisations are de-identified. The views and conclusions are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent those of the coroners, Department of Health and Human Services, Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine or Monash University. Reproduction and Copyright This document may be reproduced in its entirety for the purposes of research, teaching and education and may not be sold or used for profit in any way. You may create a web link to the electronic version. Permission must be obtained for any modification or intended alternative uses of this document. If referring to this publication, the following citation should be used. Residential Aged Care Communique, Electronic Resource, Department of Forensic Medicine, Monash University. Available at www.bifmcommuniques.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode. Remember the online print versions of the communique are available at our website. The website is www.thecommuniques, all one word, .com. There you'll find this edition of the communique and the resources and any other references that experts recommended. I'm Joseph Ibrahim. Thanks for listening.